Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, child murder, gore, sexual abuse, and incest. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On April 8, 1922, an astonishing decision was reached at the coroner's office in the neighboring town of Groburn, Germany, just outside the Kaifeck settlement. The bodies of six victims were about to be buried, but before any graves could be dug, there was one last order of business. The heads of the victims were removed by authorities, boxed up, and sent to Munich, Some speculated that they were being sent to some kind of forensic specialist who could finally figure out what happened. But after days of fruitless investigation, the police had given up on hard evidence. They were actually sending the victim's remains to a psychic. After the packages arrived at the clairvoyant's doorstep, a few Munich police officers joined him for a seance. The authorities sat wide-eyed as the psychic described his vision of the killer. According to the psychic, the perpetrator was a small and vengeful man. He moved with elegant and precise motions, like a predator in the wild. He attacked out of the blue on a cold night. The victims, the prey, couldn't see it coming. And while the authorities were transfixed by the psychic's insight, they knew all too well that this was a last-ditch effort. Even though his story was compelling... It turned out to be yet another far-fetched theory tossed onto an ever-growing pile. From there, things only got more convoluted. After countless testimonies, witnesses, and half-baked theories, those tasked with bringing the Hinterkaifeck killer to justice were more confused than ever. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode marking the 100th year anniversary of the Hinterkaifeck murders of 1922. After a family of five were murdered along with their maid on a remote farm in Germany, prosecutors and detectives struggled to drum up a single lead. But after months of investigation, the authorities came to believe the prime suspect had been right in front of them the whole time. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. 
Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. On April 4, 1922, 48-year-old Lawrence Schlittenbauer finally decided to check on his neighbors, the Gruber family. Over the previous few days, various people had stopped by his home to ask about them. They'd complain about strange sounds coming from the Gruber's farm and wonder why they hadn't seen the family for days. At first, Schlittenbauer brushed this off. He knew the family well and was all too familiar with how dysfunctional they could be. But after four days without a single sighting, he decided it was time to check in. He and his two sons carefully entered the property known as Hinterkaifeck. They were surprised to see one of the family's cows on the loose, but other than that, nothing seemed amiss. But then Schlittenbauer pushed open the barn door. Four members of the Gruber family lay dead on the ground. Though their bodies had been heavily disfigured, Schlittenbauer recognized all of them. Andreas, Kazelia, Victoria, and Victoria's daughter, who was also named Kazelia. He cautiously entered the farmhouse and found two more bodies. In the side room, the family's maid, Maria Baumgartner, lay dead. And a few feet away, one-year-old Josef was lifeless in his crib. Lauren Schlittenbauer had known little Josef since the day he was born. He'd been preparing to marry Victoria when she became pregnant. According to her, Schlittenbauer was actually the baby's father. Even though Schlittenbauer didn't agree with Victoria, it was still shocking to see the tiny, cold body. He took a few moments to accept the grim reality and then sent for the police. Evening was at hand by the time the officers were en route, and a small crowd of onlookers began to grow outside Hinterkaifeck. Just about everyone in Groburn and neighboring towns knew of Schlittenbauer's ties to the Gruber family. Once word spread, everyone assumed that he would be inconsolable. But Schlittenbauer was in good spirits. He seemed to be thriving. He took charge of the crime scene as if it was his job. He led groups of townsfolk through the barn and house, offering up spirited explanations and theories. I believe... The killer lured Elder Kazelia here first, as you can see by the placement of her body. In situations such as these, we must observe the minutiae in order to understand what really happened. Pardon me, Mr. Schlittenbauer, but are you all right? Well, obviously, I'm a bit shaken up, but we must persevere in spite of these great atrocities. I just... Baby Yosef, I'm so sorry. It's awful. Right, yes. Well, anyhow. Now, this is interesting. If you look into the corner of the barn, you can see depressions in the haystack. Too small to be an imprint of a fallen piece of equipment, yet 
too large to be that of an animal. My guess, this is where our killer lay, waiting. When the local police arrived, Schlittenbauer was at the farm gates waiting to greet them. He gave them a tour of the property and explained his own theories about what happened. Then he finally brought them to where the bodies had been found. To their shock, Schlittenbauer's improvised tours had completely ruined the crime scene. Footprints were stomped out. Farm animals roamed freely about the barn. And most glaringly, the bodies of the Gruber family had been rolled over and propped up. There was hardly any usable evidence left. The officers were irate, but they didn't let it show. They indulged Schlittenbauer and let him feel as though he really was some sort of authority in this situation. Little did he know, as each hour passed by, he was only further incriminating himself. It was as if Schlittenbauer believed he could shirk suspicion by appearing completely unfazed. But in the detective's eyes, this strained casualness only made him look more guilty. As the investigations started heating up, the local police contacted the Munich police for help. The Munich police dispatched four officers, who packed themselves into a car and headed out toward Hinterkaifeck around midnight. They were led by Detective Georg Reingruber. However, while traveling, they missed a few of their turns and got lost in the back roads of rural Germany. By now, they realized that at this time of night, they wouldn't be able to see much of the crime scene anyway. So when they made it to the nearby town of Wangen, they decided to stay until daybreak. Finally, at 5.30 a.m. on April 5th, they arrived at Hinterkaifeck. And oddly enough, Lauren Schlittenbauer was standing at the gates waiting for them. It looked like he'd been there all night. Good morning, officers. Brace yourselves. This one is not for the faint of heart. Let me guess. You're Lauren Schlittenbauer. I see my reputation precedes me. Now, if you'll just follow me, I can show you where I found the bodies approximately 14 and a half hours ago. Now, before we enter the barn, I should mention that while it may appear that the Grubers all were murdered in one fell swoop, it is my current theory that- Have you been home, eaten, showered? Well, no, but I fancy myself sort of a community leader. And in times like these, people like me need to step up and take charge. I'm just doing what I'd hope others would do for me. Right. Why don't you go and fetch us some candles from inside? That would be a tremendous help to us. You think you can do that? Anything to help? Something is off with that guy. He is way too happy to be here. Don't let him out of your sight. I don't want him touching anything, understand? Soon thereafter, the Munich officers sent Schlittenbauer home to get some sleep. Undisturbed, they were able to do a comprehensive sweep of the Gruber's property. And as the investigation carried on, they realized that these murders were far more ruthless than they'd previously thought possible. Coming up, Detective Reingruber takes over the chilling investigation of the Hinterkaifeck murders, and Lauren Schlittenbauer becomes the prime suspect. Hi, I'm Christine Schiefer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. 
If you've heard our podcast and that's what we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches? Who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now, back to the story. Just after 5.30 a.m. on April 5th, the day after the Hinterkaifeck murders, Detective Georg Reingruber and his colleagues from the Munich Police Department were finally able to begin investigating the massacre. The morning sun hung high over their heads and illuminated the desolate farm. The ever-pestering Lauren Schlittenbauer was finally out of their hair, but he was not far from their minds. Schlittenbauer's enthusiastic demeanor had already made him a prime suspect. But before he could get to his list of potential killers, Reingruber had to assess the crime scene. First, he needed to get a proper look at the bodies, which had been manhandled and shifted around by Schlittenbauer. Directly below the barn's entryway was the body of 72-year-old Kazelia Gruber. Her daughter, 35-year-old Victoria, lay only feet away. Off to the side, slumped up against the wall, was 63-year-old Andreas with his granddaughter, 7-year-old Kazelia, right next to him. Reingruber inspected each body one at a time. Even though Schlittenbauer and the curious townsfolk had compromised much of the evidence, one thing was clear. All six of the victims had been killed with the same weapon. The detective deduced the murder instrument had to be something with both a blunt end and a blade. His first guess was a pickaxe. And just as he reached this conclusion, one of his colleagues found something similar in a nearby feeding trough. Detective, you gotta see this. Ah, pickaxe, that's perfect. But look at it. Notice anything? It looks fine to me. What do you mean? Exactly. No bloodstains, no nothing. It looks freshly cleaned. I suppose you're right. Could the killer have wiped it clean? Or was licked clean? Now, I know it sounds crazy, but take a look around. All these wild animals roaming around, it's not impossible. Perhaps this theory wouldn't have been as compelling if the blade wasn't so consistent with the wounds inflicted upon the family. Reingruber took another look around the barn and noticed something else. The door was only wide enough to fit one person through at a time. And if they couldn't have entered the barn at the same time, it seemed like they were lured there one by one. The detective stepped outside and began reviewing witness testimonies. 
He realized that many of the testimonies mentioned a cow roaming freely around the farm. Schlittenbauer himself had mentioned it several times. Reingruber wondered if it was possible that the murderer let the cow out of its pen on purpose. Certainly the sound of a loose animal could have caught the attention of at least one family member. And if they were ambushed by a killer in the barn, the cow would keep making noise. Then another family member would walk into the murderer's trap. It was an odd tactic, but it seemed like an effective one. But this was just a theory. The detectives still had very little hard evidence and had yet to land on a compelling motive for the murders. And as the afternoon progressed, things only got more bleak. Two police dogs were set loose into Hinterkaifeck and the surrounding area. However, their search was hindered due to the thick layer of sleet that covered the farmland. Years away from any sort of DNA or forensic technology, the officers could only rely on basic tools, search dogs, witness testimonies, and sheer intuition. Unfortunately for them, none of these resources seemed to be working. Around noon, the detectives finally entered the Gruber's home. Much to their surprise, the house was in fairly good order. It looked like there had been some kind of struggle in the kitchen. A chair had been knocked over, and small traces of blood were spattered on the ground. But it was nowhere near as bad as the nearby barn. In the officer's experience, murderers would often follow up their initial crimes by ransacking the home and stealing anything they could. But nothing in the main living area seemed to be missing. Almost everything was in its place. However, when Detective Reingruber entered Victoria's room, he could tell things were different. The blankets were hanging off of her bed, and papers from her desk drawer were scattered around the room. It looked like someone had rifled through her purse, but oddly enough, it looked like they hadn't stolen anything. Stacks of money and scores of jewelry were left completely untouched. If this was a robbery, it was a very puzzling one. It doesn't make any sense. Gold, jewels, money, all still here. But her purse? A girl like her couldn't have had more than a few bills in there. If that. Maybe they weren't looking for money. Or anything valuable, for that matter. Not in that sense, anyway. How do you mean? This can't have been a robbery. It looks like someone was targeting Victoria. Maybe trying to get back at her and her family for something. How else could you explain it? You don't think... Lauren Schlittenbauer. It all keeps coming back to him. The detectives from Munich deduced that the killer knew the Grubers personally and clearly honed in on Victoria more than the other victims. Though still vague, the picture of the killer was becoming more clear, and no one fit the bill more than Lawrence Schlittenbauer. The team was becoming more and more certain that this was Schlittenbauer's doing, but they still had the rest of the house to inspect, and plenty more surprises were waiting for them. Ryan Gruber and his team made their way into the Gruber's attic. In his book, Footsteps in the Attic, author Edward Chilvers described how the floor was scattered with hay, almost as if someone was trying to muffle the sound of their footsteps. Off to the side, there was a pile of straw and refuse that almost resembled a makeshift bed or cushion. There was a large depression in the middle of it that was vaguely the size of a grown man. 
And finally, tucked away in the corner, the detectives found scraps of bacon and a mound of human feces. The Grubers had noticed strange things around their house in the days leading up to their deaths. They heard crawling and scratching from inside the attic and within the walls. They saw trails of footsteps in the snow and the rough figure of a man watching them from the trees. For a while, the Grubers may have thought they were going crazy, but the scene in the attic showed that the threat against them was all too real. It looked like someone had been living on their property, watching them for quite some time. The idea that the murderer could have actually been watching the family before killing them sent a chill down the detective's spines. But they couldn't call it a day quite yet. There were still many questions that needed answering. They had no real motive for the killings or suspects that were corroborated with any witness testimonies. Working with what they had, the officers tried to create some sort of timetable for how the murders played out. Ideally, they tried to determine the order in which the members of the Gruber family were murdered in an attempt to create a narrative. However, thanks to Schlittenbauer's meddling, this was impossible. Bodies had been moved and footsteps had been wiped clean from the dirt. All they had to rely on were the testimonies taken earlier that day. Inside the home, it was easier to paint a picture of what exactly had happened to the maid, Maria Baumgartner, and baby Yosef. Maria's suitcase was still open in the midst of being unpacked. And judging by the position of her body, it looked like the killer snuck up on her from behind. Now, with a slightly more fleshed-out understanding of just what had occurred at Hinterkaifeck, the team took a moment to go over everything they had. Testimonies, evidence, theories, and the hard facts. Nine hours. We've been here for nine hours and still nothing. What about Schlittenbauer? You seemed so sure earlier. It's good. It's certainly the best we've got. But he's got no record, no history of violence or crime or anything. Eh, well, maybe some sort of a vagrant. Traveling band of criminals, that sort of thing isn't uncommon in these parts, you know? Then tell me why the only thing that was stolen from this godforsaken place was some loose change. Maybe if we just get a few more testimonies? Or head back up to the attic and dig around some more? That's useless! Some monster killed six innocent people and vanished into thin air! It makes no sense! Unfortunately for the team of detectives, this frustration and uncertainty would continue to plague the investigation for years to come. Coming up, the police search far and wide for a lead on the Gruber murders, but find themselves sifting through an ocean of false confessions and baseless theories. And now back to the story. On April 6, 1922, the second full day of the Hinterkaifeck investigation began. The police had plenty of suspicions, but not much in the way of evidence. Lauren Schlittenbauer was looking like the prime suspect, but this was based on little more than hearsay and gut instinct. The officers had spent a lot of time studying the Gruber family's bodies. The gashes that covered their heads and torsos looked like they were from the same murder weapon, but they couldn't be sure. 
They called in a doctor, Johann Aumuller, to perform autopsies on the bodies. The doctor was able to confirm that the murder weapon was likely a pickaxe of some sort. After operating on seven-year-old Kazelia for a few hours, he discovered yet another disturbing piece of information. Bits of the young girl's hair had been pulled out from her scalp. At first, the doctor thought that the killer must have done this, but then as he continued to inspect the body, he found balls of hair watered up tightly in her fists. As far as Dr. Almuller was concerned, this meant one thing. The initial blows did not kill Kazelia. She likely lay on the ground for upwards of several hours and tore out her own hair in agony. Her death was ultimately the result of shock from blood loss. If someone had found her early enough, she could have been saved. While this disturbing discovery didn't point the investigators in any new directions, it reminded them of the sheer brutality involved. Whoever was responsible had to be capable of immense cruelty, and they needed to find him as fast as they could. The autopsies carried on. Both Andreas and his wife, also named Kazelia, had died from nearly identical head wounds. Victoria's body stood out, however. Unlike the rest of the family who looked like they died from the pickaxe alone, it appeared that Victoria had been strangled. And while Andreas and Kazelia had sustained a small number of blows, Victoria had been struck in the head a total of nine times. Her skull had cracked almost completely. The state of her body, combined with her ransacked bedroom, made the investigators wonder if she was the main target. Two days passed as the officers tried to find an angle. Once again, they found themselves flush with theories, testimonies, and speculation. But still, there was nothing that even resembled evidence within reach. Law enforcement was so desperate that they offered up a reward of 100,000 marks for any information whatsoever that could help find the killer. But even with a hefty cash reward for new leads, nothing came in. Many of the officers completely forgot about Hinter Kaifek, so much so that they forgot to move the bodies after the autopsy. If you want, we could stop by Hinter Kaifek. You mean where all those people got killed? I don't know. Oh, come on. The bodies are still there. Haven't you ever wanted to see a dead body before? We'll get in trouble. No, I swear. Everyone in town is doing it. Come on, don't be such a wuss. It's right up at this turn. All right, fine. It is unknown why civilians were allowed to interact with a live crime scene, but the police didn't even try to intervene. And this wasn't the only indignity done to the Gruber family in this short span of time. The evidence was so scant, and the notion of actually solving the case seemed like such a long shot, that the detectives went to drastic measures. In an act of sheer desperation, they cut off the Gruber's heads and sent them to a well-known psychic. I hear a sound. It penetrates the cold winter silence like a knife. Three people, no. It's two, yes, two men, small and cunning with quick movements. There is then a surprise attack. There is then a cry, a cry of revenge. This was a low point for the investigation. The clairvoyant's vague testimony didn't lead anywhere. 
The detectives quickly moved on, and while they steered clear of any other paranormal resources, it was obvious that they were still grasping at straws. All they knew was that their killer was most likely someone well acquainted with the family, particularly Victoria. This person knew their way around the farm, and they had no reason to rob the family. In spite of basic logic, the authorities seriously considered Victoria Gruber's ex-husband, Carl Gabriel. Carl seemed like an ideal suspect, but there was one problem. He had died more than seven years earlier. But the police were so desperate for new leads, they decided to double-check. On April 29th, local police filed a request to law enforcement in Munich. In the wake of our unsuccessful investigation into the Hinterkaifeck murders, I would like to request the necessary resources to determine whether one Carl Gabriel did in fact perish in 1914 while fighting in France. I have a number of reputable sources who have informed me of cases wherein soldiers who have supposedly fallen in combat have returned to society completely unscathed, only to begin life anew. This far-fetched theory was quickly dispelled. Carl had died in the trenches of World War I, and a number of his fellow soldiers took it upon themselves to testify. So you were in the service with Carl Gabriel? Yes, I was. And it was Christmas Day when he died. I saw him in the shallow grave that his comrades dug for him. It was a grenade blast. And he died fighting for you, for us. Quite frankly, it is disgusting that you would imply anything else. The case against Carl Gabriel was quickly scrapped, but he was replaced by an equally dubious suspect, a man named George Zeidel. Zeidel first appeared on the detective's radar after he told the police officer that he'd heard two brothers in a nearby town brag about killing the Gruber family. These brothers were never found, and it turned out that Zeidel's statement was a blatant lie. He was sent to prison for three months, where he continued to churn out false accusations. It seemed like he'd become obsessed with the Hinterkaifeck story and rarely talked about anything else. Zeidel wrote many letters to local prosecutors claiming that he overheard other inmates confessing to the murders. I am writing to you with the utmost urgency. I believe that I have finally put the mystery surrounding the Hinterkaifeck murders to rest. A man named Yaroslav has plainly confessed to me. He is a vagrant and a thief. If you only knew half the things he has confessed to me, you might understand the gravity with which I am writing to you. And he did not work alone. There will be more to come. Thank you for your time. When Zeidel was eventually interrogated about this information, it became clear that he had lost touch with reality. The authorities stopped taking his claims seriously and widened their scope again to other suspects. But at this point, it seemed like there weren't any new leads. And of the suspects they'd already looked into, only one seemed to warrant serious consideration, Lauren Schlittenbauer. Luckily for police, the townspeople of Groburn seemed to be just as suspicious as they were. Please, take a seat. Now, what can you tell us about Mr. Schlittenbauer? I came to Hinterkaifeck on the day they found the bodies, April 4th. Everyone in town stopped by to see what the commotion was about, and it was just odd. 
As soon as I stepped through the gates, there Lauren's was. It was almost like he had this whole routine prepared. Can you expand on that? Well, he knew his way around the farm. In a way that struck me as odd, considering he didn't live there, and certainly had no reason to be so familiar with it. I mean, everyone knows about him and Victoria, but even still. Did you know Mr. Schlittenbauer when he was romantically involved with Victoria? As a matter of fact, I have a friend who knew Schlittenbauer. According to him, the two of them had a pretty rocky time together. Lots of fighting and screaming. Not to mention him and Andreas were always at each other's throats. At this point in the investigation, Schlittenbauer was the only person amongst the pool of suspects who had any reasonable motive to murder the Grubers. He had a well-known grudge against the family and had a violent history with Andreas. When Schlittenbauer had been engaged to Victoria, Andreas had threatened to attack him with a scythe. And Schlittenbauer was known to have accused Victoria's infant son, Josef, of being a product of incest instead of his own son. Schlittenbauer was also the first person to really investigate the crime scene. He claimed that he was shocked to find the infant, who may or may not have been his son, murdered in his crib. But those who saw him that day remembered him being cool-headed and almost emotionless. It was odd that Schlittenbauer was able to behave with such composure after coming face-to-face with any murdered child, much less a boy who could have been his son. This combined with his connections to the family made police almost certain that he was the culprit. When they brought Schlittenbauer in for questioning, he claimed that this strange sense of calm was actually due to shock. The murders had knocked his world off its axis and he went into a kind of fugue state in order to cope. The detectives didn't quite buy this explanation. But once the case got to the courts, the prosecutor presiding over it did. He found it impossible to believe that a man like Schlittenbauer could have committed such a heinous crime and said as much in his final ruling. There is no doubt in my mind that Lorenz Schlittenbauer is the closest thing this case has to a prime suspect. However, that does not change the fact that this is a man with no previous record, no history of violence. Nothing about this distinguished member of the community could lead me to believe that Mr. Schlittenbauer could be capable of such monstrous behavior. And as Schlittenbauer was dismissed as a suspect, the entire case went cold. But the story of Hinterkaifeck was not over yet. A power struggle erupted over control of the farm between Andreas's siblings and relatives of Victoria's first husband, Carl Gabriel. Since the entire family had been wiped out, the only way the court could determine rightful ownership was by determining the order in which the Grubers were murdered. But because the police never saw the original crime scene, this was nearly impossible to figure out. The case was ultimately settled out of court. The Gabriels got the farm while Andreas's siblings received hefty payouts. And all of this trouble seemed to be for nothing. The Gabriels had the entire farm demolished the very next year. And just like that, the legacy and mystery of Hinterkaifeck calcified into a thing of legend. A final review of the case was made in 1985, 
but came to no clear conclusions. Now, a full century after the massacre, the identity of the murderer is still a mystery. Many believe that Lauren Schlittenbauer is responsible. While he had no past record of violent crimes or even aggressive behavior, he had undergone undeniable amounts of trauma at the hands of the Gruber family, Andreas in particular. Andreas had harassed him both physically and verbally. He had abused Victoria while she was courting Schlittenbauer. And on top of it all, Schlittenbauer voiced his belief that the baby Josef was actually Andreas's son, not his. Schlittenbauer had ample reason to seek retribution, and his knowledge of the farm's layout may have helped him to commit the murders. Still, it seemed unlikely that mild-mannered Schlittenbauer could commit a crime of this magnitude. His behavior at the crime scene was bizarre, but it wasn't incriminating. Before the murders, everyone knew him as a kind and gentle man. He'd also had plenty of previous chances to enact violence against Andreas Gruber, but he always retreated in the face of confrontation. Nevertheless, most researchers seem to agree that Schlittenbauer is the most likely suspect. But due to the passage of time and the dizzying details of the case, this theory is impossible to confirm. The chilling truth of it all is that whoever did carry out this unfathomable murder disappeared into the thick woods surrounding Hinterkaifeck. Almost 100 years later, we are left much like the men tasked with bringing the murderer to justice in the first place. We're left with no way of knowing who ended the lives of an entire family on one cold morning in April. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information amongst the many sources we used, we found Footsteps in the Attic, a true account of the slayings at the Hinterkaifeck homestead by Edward Chilvers to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time... Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Kylie Harrington and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Drew Lawn, Cameron Nicod, and Laith Walshlager. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.